Living after dying. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is it possible that we have only tasted, that we have only scratched the surface, that we have only seen the tip of the iceberg, that we have only caught a glimpse of the joy and the wonder, the peace, the love, the grace, the satisfaction, the meaning that Christ offers to us because we're still in the process of being crucified. And we've not yet reached all that he has for us in the life after dying. When we get to that place of the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I think so. We know very little about Lazarus' death, except that he was so sick that his sisters knew he was dying. We don't know if Lazarus was conscious, if he knew that he was dying. What we do know about Lazarus is that he was very good friends with Jesus, his whole family. Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, were good friends with Jesus. His, their home was a home away from home for Jesus in his ministry. And he would go there to refresh. And, but we know very little about his death. We know that the sisters knew that he was dying because they sent a message to Jesus that you need to get back here. You need to come to Lazarus' house because this man that you love, this good friend of yours, <clears throat> he's sick. And he, you need to come and take care of him. You need to heal him. And we know that Jesus didn't go right away, but intentionally stayed where he was to let Lazarus die. Because... It was a part of God's plan that Lazarus would die and then after dying, he would live again. We know that um, he finally shows up. He goes to the tomb and he instructs the people that are there to remove the stone. That, so his tomb was a cave and they had a stone in front of it. And, and after four days, he said, remove the stone. And, and we know that Martha is standing there and Depending on the translation that you use, we hear her say, but Lord, he stinketh in the King James or in the New King James. There will be a stench or in the ESV, there will be an odor. She believed that he was dead and he was going to stay dead. This is, in other words, Martha was saying, this is Jesus, this is not a good idea. He's dead and there's nothing more that we can do about it. But Jesus insisted, just believe and you will see the glory of God. Lazarus, meanwhile, in the tomb, stone was rolled away and Jesus said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Jesus heard. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, Lazarus is laying there and his eyes fly open. But as he's laying there, has he experienced the resurrected life yet? He, his heart is now beating, but he's not experienced the resurrected life. 
perhaps he, then he, he sits up, orienting himself to what has just happened. But is he experiencing the resurrected life? And then he stands up, maybe shuffles to the door until finally he's standing right outside the door, wrapped in grave clothes and not being able to move. But has he really experienced the resurrected life that Jesus wants us to experience? He stands there um, and, and, and Jesus says, well, unwrap him. It took somebody else to unwrap him. He couldn't do it all by himself. Unwrap him. And then as he's standing there with the grave clothes removed, I still don't think he's experienced the resurrected life. But then he goes to Jesus. And they go back to his house. And he begins to walk with Jesus. And I think it's at that moment when he begins to experience the resurrected life. Because the resurrected life is about walking with Jesus. And that's what Lazarus experienced. Each of us were dead in our sins. We talked about this verse last week. We talked about the first part of being crucified with Christ. For those who have accepted the invitation for Jesus to be Lord by turning away from sin, turning towards Christ, that's the crucified life. We have, we have died to ourselves. And, and now, after we die to ourselves, we are to surrender ourselves so that it is still all about Jesus. It's all about walking with Jesus. It's all being all in with Jesus or nothing, all or nothing. It's a lifestyle of choosing Jesus over my own desires. That's the, that's the crucified life. The second part is about living. What is this life? And I think sometimes we miss that because we focus on the first part of the verse. I've been crucified with Christ. I've died to myself. The old man is dead. But the rest of it is, it's, I'm no longer alive. And, and so much of, in Christianity, what I see is people trying to add Jesus to their lives instead of allowing his life to live within them and through them. So let's talk about it. What does it mean to live after dying, after being crucified with Christ? Number one, it's a new life. And I put new in all caps because it's new. It's not an addition to, but it's new. It's being born again. And so we die to ourselves and we're born again. There's a new life in us. It's no longer we that live, but rather it's Christ who lives in us. It's literally Christ's life in us. So that his spirit comes to live within us. That's what Pentecost was all about. And scripture after scripture, we find that it's, it's his spirit within us. And if you don't have the spirit of Christ within you, then, then you don't belong to him. It's his life within us. It's his life transforming us. It's no longer I who live. Galatians 2.20, it's not me anymore. But rather it's the spirit of God. It's, I, we live by faith, the reliance. We'll talk about that in a moment. Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Does anybody need a Bible? I think I printed this one but you'll need it for a couple of other scriptures we'll look at. Anybody need a Bible? Okay. Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So our old person dies. We are crucified with Christ. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's saying, he's saying, as you are living in this body, you now have his life. But we can also look forward to the next life, an eternal life, when he will transform us into eternal beings. And so it's literally Christ's life in us. Now, I could sit all day and try to explain that logically, but you can't. How in the world, how does God's spirit come to live within us? And now it's his power, his presence, his strength, his everything. But we can see evidence of it. Because as we look in the New Testament, we see his followers following him for almost three years, watching him die, paying attention. He shows up after, after he's resurrected again. He shows up here and there. And, and they're still the old people. But then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them and they're no longer powerless, fearful, knuckleheads. I mean, um, they're just, they just can't get it. But then the Spirit comes, takes all that Jesus has taught them, combines it with his presence, and they're transformed. And nobody can explain that. The, the religious leaders can't deal with that. They don't know what to think of these people because they don't have any control of them anymore. Because there's no fear. There's no, because it's Christ that's living within them. Where it was us before, now it's his presence within. As we are crucified, as we surrender, listen and obey. And so in the Son of God, our character is changed. What we do is changed. What we love is changed. Not because we have added Christ onto our lives, but rather because we've surrendered our lives to him. And now it's no longer we who live. And it's in our bodies now. So in that scripture in Galatians 2.20, says, in the life I now live in the flesh. It's here and now. It's not just in eternity. It's here and now. We can live in that kind of presence of Christ. The life we now live in the flesh. And so it's not the old life recycled or made better or improved, the new and improved, you know, all those commercials. New and improved, new and improved. No, it's not new and improved. It's different. It's transformed. We still look the same, but we're different because Christ lives in us. So it's a new life that only comes from him living in us. It's also a relationship. It's a relationship. Born again, we become children of the Father, and we start a new life. A beginning and an ongoing growth. And so there's a beginning. So I, I started thinking about Lazarus. How awkward it would have been as he emerged from that tomb. And they, they took the grave clothes off, and, and then he go in over and began to talk with Jesus and and, um, you know, I can just imagine, this is not, not in scripture, but I could just imagine Jesus going, oh, you, well, you've got to be hungry. Let's go back to the house. And then talking, and, and who knows what that conversation would have been, because he's been dead. 
We don't know if he was in the presence of God or he's just kind of in limbo. Doesn't tell us any of that. All we know is he was dead. Now he's alive. That'll change your life. Right? He was dead and now he's alive. And now it's, it's new territory because he was dead and now everything is different. When we die to ourselves and the new life comes in, it's new territory. It's different. It, it's going to be awkward at times, but it, it's, a new, it's a beginning of a relationship with Christ. And so can you imagine the conversation that uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus had around the dinner table that night? Their brother has been given back to them. Their life has been given back to them. And, and Jesus and Lazarus and and talking about what's, what's going to coming up, because Jesus had prepared, and he says, if you, if you believe in me, you're going to see the glory of God. Well, yeah, they saw the glory of God. They saw Lazarus being raised back to life. And it's the, the same kind of profound experience that Lazarus had is the profound experience that we have when we truly give our lives to Christ. Because it's a new life. It's a new relationship. And now... Every heartbeat that Lazarus has, he knows it's only because of Jesus. Right? Every breath that he takes, he knows it's only because of Jesus. Every, every time he eats a meal, it's only because of Jesus. Every time he embraces his sisters, he knows it's only because of Jesus. And that's got to be the way that we see it as well. When we accept Christ as Savior... He puts a new heart in us so that every time our heart beats is because of Jesus. Every time we breathe spiritually, it's because of Jesus. What we take into our lives, it has to, it's, it's about living in faith with Him. Because it's not just being born again. It's, that's the beginning. Which brings us to the next one. It's a journey. It's a journey. This, this life in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ um, no, and yet I live. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God. It's a starting point. I've begun a new life, and now it's a journey. Accepting Christ, you know, I, some of you have heard the term the sinner's prayer, when, when someone says, okay, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm accepting Christ as Savior. That's the beginning that's just a mo that's the that's signing on. That's that's the contract. Now it's about it's it's kind of like when a, a man and a woman stand at the altar and say I do. That's the beginning. They haven't done anything. I don't know why we say I do. Because they've done nothing except say yes. Right? Now live it out. And that's what he's saying. It's a journey. Here's a couple of scriptures. Second Peter chapter two, verse eleven. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners. People who are traveling from one place to another. Pilgrims who are on a, a path to arrive somewhere. And exile, exiles. Sojourners and exiles. People who don't belong here. Now I want you to look at me. If you accept Christ as your Savior, you no longer, this is not your home anymore. This is, we're just traveling. This is a journey this is where we are until we get home. We are exiles. And so what are we to do? Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't participate in the selfish desires of this life anymore. We're on a journey 
toward the life that is... And, and, and so he says those passions war against your soul. They want to take you out so that you no longer belong to Christ, so that you're no longer on this journey. And then Hebrews eleven sixteen, talking about examples of people who have gone before us, says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is not our home. It's okay if you don't experience everything in this life. Because in the next life, you will experience things that you can't even imagine. This life is not our home. And so it's a, it's a relationship of obedience, and it's a journey that we continue. It has a starting point, and then it's traveling. It's also a skill set. And I haven't heard a lot of, of Christians talk in, the, in these kinds of terms. It's a skill set. We're, we're born again into a, this, this new life. We begin this relationship with Christ, and, and then it's a journey where we're walking on this life towards death with Christ, but it requires a new skill set. It requires some abilities that we didn't have before. And most oftentimes in the Christian circles, they call it discipleship, becoming. So a disciple is one who is striving to become like his master. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's not just knowing biblical truth, but rather it's living a skill set that Christ gives to us as he takes us on this journey. That's why Jesus spent two and a half, three years with his disciples. He was trying to, to give them instruction, model for them the instruction so that when the Holy Spirit came, it would click and they go, oh, okay, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. Turn in your Bibles there. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, I want you to think about this as what you're learning. And so, um, whatever we sow, whether it's character, whether it's relationships, whether it's, um, you know, developing different abilities, we're sowing into that. So, whatever we put our effort into, whatever we put our energy into, that's what's going to come back to us. For the one who sows to his flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption. So if you're spending your time, your energy, your, your, the, the things that you're learning, your time, your abilities, if you're putting that into the things that you want to do, into this world, the things that are not of Jesus, then you're going to reap corruption in this life and in the next. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so his, he's saying, you need to sow. You need to put effort. You need to do the things. You need to invest in that which will cause you to grow the ability 
to walk in step with Jesus. It doesn't happen automatically. If someone wants to uh, become an engineer and they, they believe that that's what they want to do, they're good with their hands, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> they know what tools are for, they know how to do calculus and geometry and all those things that I, I never grasped. And, um, and, and they said, no, I want to be an engineer. I think it'd be good to be an engineer. And so they graduate from high school and they uh, go to an engineering firm. And so then they say, I want to be an engineer. And the engineering firm will say, what? What? What skills do you have? Let me see your qualifications. Let me see your certifications. Let me see your experience. They go, well, oh, you know, uh, no, I just really believe, you know, in fact, let me, let me share, because I, I believe God wants me to be an engineer. And they'll go, well, that's good. That's fine. Come back in six years after you get your tr the training and the education and the experience and the certifications that you need, and then we'll take a look. But I, I want to be an engineer. I'm an, I, I, I believe with all my heart that I'm an engineer. And they'll say, go home. <laughs> it's great that you have that desire, but you don't have the skill set. And I think so oftentimes in the Christian life, we think because we've accepted Christ as Savior, maybe we read the Bible a little bit, and we've been around church people, then now we are the Christian that God wants us to be. But it's a skill set. If that was the way it worked, Jesus would have just come and, and he wouldn't spend three years with these men preparing them. And throughout the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul saying to Timothy, invest in other men, teach them um, the, ways, the ways of the Father. It's, it's a skill set. And yet it's a skill set so oftentimes we're lax about. Let me read from you. Let me read for you, not from you. I guess I could read some of your shirts, but that wouldn't be the same. The Friday reading from our devotional that I recommended for the year, Hearing God by Willard, uh, Dallas Willard, says we may mistakenly think that we would automatically recognize God's voice if God spoke to us. Now, where we're headed with this is I'm going to talk about being involved in the, um, the, our next study called Experiencing God, learning to recognize God when he's at work and rec recognize his voice when he speaks. And he says, we may mistakenly think that we would automatically recognize God's voice if God spoke to us. Abraham often did, but Eli, the priest, the priest who was supposed to know God's voice, had to learn. To think we will recognize God's voice without having to learn is a mistake. Perhaps we don't recognize God's voice right off because of our fallen and distorted condition, or perhaps it's just normal in personal relationships. If you, um, so if you go, those of you that have been married, if you go back in your life and the first time you met your future spouse, you talked with them and then they called you and you picked up the phone and they said something, chances are you didn't recognize their voice because you'd only talked to them one time. But if you've been married any length of time, 
even if you don't look at the caller ID and you pick up the phone and you hear, all they have to do is say one word or the tone of their, <sighs> you immediately recognize them. Why? Because you've learned the skill set of recognizing their voice. What makes us think that we're going to recognize God's voice any easier unless we learn to hear it Amen. over and over and over again? Yeah. And that's his point. Perhaps it's because of the gentleness which, which the Father speaks. Whatever the reason, we, much, we, we must be told at first that God is speaking to us. Only later do we come without assistance and confidently to distinguish God and recognize his voice as his voice. That ability comes only with experience. It's a skill set to recognize God's voice. Number five, it's also a group experience. It's a group experience. We have a new family, which then results, leads to supernatural synergy. I find it interesting that if we go back to the Lazarus story, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He hears the voice. New life comes into his body. He shuffles out to the door, but it requires other people in the group to come and set him free. We live in such an independent, individualistic society that we think we can be set free by ourselves. That's not biblical. Throughout the scripture, we find it's us, not me. And when we gather together, the power of God, the presence of God is stronger because there's a supernatural synergy that takes place. It's a group experience. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Turn there, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Um, and unbeknownst to me, Shannon chose for our scripture reading, verses 5 to, what was it, 8 or 9? Same passage, which is an indication to me that this is important to God. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with, with verse 1. So if there's any encouragement of Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not in this journey, this relationship, this skill set is not a, an individual journey. It's a group journey. Amen. Jesus didn't choose uh, 12 different individuals to experience him one-on-one. -on -one. He chose 12 different individuals to experience almost everything together. Even when he was admonishing Peter, the others were watching and listening and learning from that. When he's, when he's engaging with Thomas, everybody else is around because it was a group. It was the synergy of togetherness. We live in such an independent society that we think that we can learn things. But there are things, and so that, that uh, young person who wanted to be an engineer but hadn't been through any school, part of that training is going to be with other people, them showing that individual how to do stuff, right? How, uh, I don't, how often do we learn much more by being shown, coming alongside somebody who knows what they're doing rather than reading a book, Right? Amen? Amen? 
and how much more important it is in relationships with God and with one another, which is what the journey is, which is what this life of the Christian Christian follower is all about. And so it's it's a group experience. Let me read from today's. It's like Dallas Willard was on the same page with us. He says, we have, if, we, let's see, if we have an openness and are willing to learn, we can come to recognize the voice of God with the assistance from those who are familiar with the divine voice from their own experience. This is so important. On the other hand, we should understand that it is in Satan's best interest to make an inherent mystery of God's word coming directly to us. In other words, it is in Satan's interest to have you hear God's voice and just independently, without confirmation from other people, without affirmation of others who are a little bit farther along the journey, walking alongside because then he can get you to stray off the path. We need other people who will keep us from walking off the cliff, right? We need other people who are asking us hard questions. Say, are you sure that's God's voice? And and we want to say yes, because I really like what I just heard. You know, I want to do what I just heard. And we need other people going, okay, well, the Bible says this, and what you're talking about doesn't really align with that. And and if you do this, here's, here's probably the trajectory where you're going to go. You can make that choice, but it's not the voice of God. In this way, the power of God's specific word for our lives can be hindered or lost without qualified help working alongside our desire to learn and readiness to cooperate. God's direct word may, may remain a riddle or a game of theological charades. This is generally the condition of the church today. Searing words. This would explain why there's such confusion and difficulty about what it really means to walk with God. Such confusion allows evil impulses to move into the vacuum and sweep us away. When we're not accountable to one another, when we don't allow people in our lives to help us, either show us skills or to check us when it looks like we're doing something wrong, Imagine that I'm at my house and I decide to do electrical work. (laughs) Yeah, and those of you that know me going, he's going to (laughs) die. And I I think to myself, you know, I probably ought to have somebody around to at least hold the ladder and call the ambulance. (laughs) And so I call Russ and I say, Russ, I'm going to... um, I'm going to replace the light and the fan in our, in our bedroom. And, and I'm thinking maybe I don't know everything I need to know, but maybe you do. Would you come over? And he would come over. And Russ, being the teacher that he is, would help me. He would say to me, okay, what you need to do is connect the black wire to the black wire. And Herb, you did turn off the power, didn't you? Oh, I'm supposed to do that? Yeah, let's turn off the power. And so he would, 
he would walk me through it. He would, talk, he would hand me, here's the best tool to do this. And, and if you want, you, know, you need a couple people to hold up the fan. And he would walk me through it because he's a good teacher. He's a good mentor. Um, and as a result, we would have a light. Our house wouldn't burn down and I wouldn't end up in the hospital. Why? Because there's somebody else who knows what they're doing, who will hold me accountable and help me do it. How many times in our Christian lives we think, well, I just, I need to have a personal quiet time. I need to pray. I need to go to church. I need to do, I need, I need, instead of how am I a part of the church and who can add value to my life and who can hold me accountable and who can ask me the hard questions so that I develop the skills that I need to be the Christ follower that he's called me to be. It's a group experience. Which brings us to the new song, Next Together Step, is Experiencing God. Experiencing God is a group experience study. There's study material. So in your, um, in your outline, I've got a little bit of a description. Um, it's, I believe that God has led us to this as a group experience, as to, um, well, let me tell me what it is, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. Number one, it's a personal time with God. So in this book, there are, I believe, 12 units that we will be studying. Each unit covers a week. There are five days per week. So you have, there are seven days in a week. There are five days. So day number one, you, there's some reading to do. You look at the scripture, you answer the questions, apply it to your life, and lean into God. A personal time with God each day. It, if you um, take your time, lean into it, it will take you 20 to 30 minutes a day, which is about the length of a news program or a podcast or a lot of other different things. 30 minutes every day spent with God, which means you're going to have to decide what, el what, what 30 minutes are you going to not do could be personal reading, it could be TV, it could be getting up 30 minutes earlier, it could be giving up surfing the internet, it could be whatever. But it'll be the best 30 minutes you spend over the next quarter. Personal time. And last week I said this is for everybody, and, and, and it is for everybody, but only for those who are willing to put forth the effort. Because if you're just going to play around with it, then just don't do it. Because it'll require you to take some time. Number two, synergy time with others weekly. You will not experience what God wants you to experience. You will not learn to hear the voice of God the way that he wants you to hear it if you try to do this alone. If you just use it as an independent study, it's not going to work because God has created us for synergy. He's created us for relationship. And if you read in 1 Corinthians and Romans, it talks about the body of Christ, and we need that together. Personally, the, you know, I have wonderful times with God by myself, but the times when I, I really come to grips with 
the, what I've learned with God alone is when I'm talking with other people about it. We need that synergy. And so each week, um, there will be, be a time we need to gather. If you cannot make the Thursday night, so this is going to be our learning community study. If you cannot make the Thursday night or the Friday afternoon, we need to figure out a way to connect you. If it, even if it's with two other people via Zoom, you need to do this with somebody, with other people. Don't do it by yourself. And so we'll work with you. We'll try to strategize. We'll do something. God's got it in mind. He knows what you need. He knows the people that you can connect with. But do not do this by yourself. We'll do it Thursday night. We'll do it Friday. And we'll make sure they're, they're, uh, we'll help you. Because I believe that this is where God is leading us. And then number three is, is learning time with the Blackabees on video. There's about a 20-minute video that goes along with each week, um, and so we'll view that. Um, one of the good things is with this book, when you purchase this book, or if you steal it, just kidding, there's a code in the back that gives you access to the videos. So you can watch them, re-watch them on your own, or you can watch them on a Zoom group, or... Um, However, however we want to do it. So it's learning time with the Bible. So it's about applying the Bible to everyday life, not just more info. The resurrected life is ongoing growth. It's a journey. It's a skill set. It's, it's a group experience. And since it's all of those things, we have to be intentional. I believe that God has, has been leading us to this over the last several years. Um, I believe the last couple of years, has, especially with the last 15 months with the learning communities, God has been um, giving us his perspective, giving us his mind through Michael Heiser and Ray Vanderlyn and American Gospel. He's been, he's been investing in us. But now, before the, um, the last week of prayer and fasting, I sense God highlighting these words, living lives of love, living lives of truth, living lives on mission. And now God is bringing this together to help us be on mission. And so it's accelerated. I put in your, in your notes there. I believe that this study, this experience is going to accelerate how, understanding how to surrender, listen, and obey. How to live a life of knees and nudges. How to live a life of, of being tugged in, in his yoke. Of walking in step with him. Of living lives of love, truth, and mission. I, I just have this sense that I had two and a half years ago that there are things afoot in the heavenlies, in, in the unseen realm, that God needs to prepare us for, that God needs to solidify us for. I don't know what it is. I, I'm not a doomsayer. And I, all I know is I just have this sense that this is really, really important. Not as a study, not, not the information, but as the experiencing God, so that we hear his voice, we see his nudges, and we're following him because there are other people who don't know Christ as Savior who need to, and, and that's what it means to be a part of the mission of Christ. There are some people who are followers of Christ who need a church family, and we need to be ready. We need to prepare. How, how do we do that? Um, and so this whole thing about experience is, is not unfamiliar to many of you because we've used the devotional book, um, 
The, the daily devotional book, is it, they, you've got an experience you got. Some of you have been through it other places. If you've been around a long time, um, it, was the, it was the springboard for much of what our church has become 25 years ago. Um, and so God has been using it. So it's also a spiritual offensive. Anytime we um, follow Christ more passionately, we surrender to the Holy Spirit and, and we're walking in step with him. And we're paying attention to what he wants us to be about and who he wants us to talk to and how we're supposed to be the salt and light. Anytime we do that, it's as if we are landing on the beaches of Normandy trying to take land from Satan himself. When that happens, you're going to face spiritual warfare. So if you commit to this, understand that you're going to experience stuff. And our attitude needs to become, well, of course. And Satan will be as, as sneaky and strategizing as he possibly can be. So it will show up in places that you don't expect it and where you've never experienced it before. You'll have relations, you'll ha there'll be relationship things that will threaten you. I mean, so you may be getting along great with your spouse or your parents or, or somebody else, and suddenly you're at odds with each other. And the attitude is, well, of course. That's what Satan's trying to do. Step back, pause, God, we're giving you this to you. We're not going to fight on our own, and we're not going to give up. It's a spiritual offensive that could, be, that could mean pain for you. If we think about Lazarus for a moment, we don't know how he died. We don't know what he died of. It's possible that it was a very painful death. But God allowed it for his purposes. And that might happen to us physically, emotionally, relationally, circumstances in our lives. Satan will try to use all of those to try to take us out. But you know what? God is bigger. Amen. It might mean pain. It might mean difficulty. It'll stretch you. But anytime we're stretched, anytime we learn new skills, it's painful. It's hard. It's difficult. And so it's a spiritual offensive. And, and so I put in there, one of, one of your attitudes is soldier up. Soldier up. After Lazarus started living after dying, his life got worse. Did you know that? Because he was such an example of the, of the power of God, and because um, everybody saw that and the miracle could not be denied, the religious leaders who were trying to kill Jesus put a bounty on Lazarus' head, and they tried to kill him. And he could have stepped back and gone, well, wait a minute here. Jesus, is this the way you treat your friends? That I, now I got to be worried about somebody killing me? And, and if he asked Jesus that, I think Jesus would go, yep. Yeah, that, because this is war. And you know what, Lazarus? If you die, you go home. Amen. So you got nothing to lose. So soldier up. We have been crucified with Christ and now live for the express 
purpose of doing spiritual battle. So be ready for things to go wrong, for odd things to happen, for temptations to be stronger, for problems to be harder, for the enemy's purpose, for things to go upside down at work or sideways in relationships. It's hard. And then, this is an important one. View obstacles as opportunities. View obstacles as opportunities. So we got the Red Sea, half the Red Sea's on the ground. But we got half the sea, Red Sea still up here. This was a, a when, when Moses faced the Red Sea, it was an obstacle that he could have thrown up his hands and gone, God, you brought me out here for this? And then he looks back and it looks like they're about to be killed. But an obstacle was an opportunity. When he went to God, the Red Sea parted, they walked through, everybody saw it, and it defeated the enemy that could have, could have just been a thorn in their side for years to come. It's an obstacle can be an opportunity. So he, here's what occurred to me. If you have children at home and you're thinking, how in the world, you know, my life is so busy, how in the world am I ever going to get 30 minutes a day in order to do this? What if that obstacle is an opportunity for you to say, hey kids, let's gather together at the table. I'm going to do some time with God. How about if you do some time with God? Or with a spouse. Or with a roommate. What if you took the book to work and did it at lunch and other people saw you doing it and it became an opportunity for you to talk to them or be a witness to them? What if the opposite, what if the things in our mind are, that are going, I don't have time for this, I don't know how I can do this. I, uh, what if all of those obstacles are God inviting you to experience the glory of God or the presence of God in a more powerful way? I'll say it again. This is for everybody, but it's only for everybody who's willing to put forth the effort. Because on the other end of this, I, and, and so if we go back 25 years, in 1997, 1998, three things happened. A friend of mine introduced me to fasting, and it has changed my life, and it has changed this congregation. The second thing is, um, out of hearing Henry Blackaby, who originally wrote this study, um, we had something we called 21 Days of Prayer. For three weeks straight, we gathered at the Jesus Fellowship um, church building over in Bethel Park. And every, every single day, for, we gathered and we just prayed. We sought God. We, we didn't even know why we were praying. We thought it was about property. What about property? It was, what it was is about God pulling us to himself. The third thing that happened is we were introduced to experiencing God. And out of that study, those three things springboarded us toward what this congregation is now. I don't believe we would be experiencing um, the intimacy with God that we are now or, or the, the kinds of relationships that are happening within the congregation now. I don't think we would have surrender, listen, obey, or knees and nudge. I don't think we would... Because it's taken 25 years for God to, to head us, and now he's saying it's time again. It's time again to focus on this for whatever reason he has. View obstacles as opportunities. One of the things in my quiet time that I sense God saying over the last couple of weeks is remove from your vocabulary this phrase. 
I'm not comfortable with that. Because it's not about being comfortable. It's about walking in step with God. Right? And, and as I read my Bible, the people who are walking in step with God are not very comfortable most of the time. And so if it's not very comfortable, it's okay. I put a statement in your outline that I believed for a long, long time. The Word of God, which is, which this, this is the inspired, uh, the Holy Spirit given through Henry Blackaby understanding of taking the Word of God, taking the truth of God, and just applying it. It's an application study. It's the Word of God used by the Spirit of God among the people of God transforms us into the image of God. That's God's process. It always has been. It always will be. So I'm going to challenge you to participate in this study. A daily time, a weekly synergy with, with some other people in some way, shape, or form, and then the video, and then putting it into practice. And then praying for one another. I don't know what God is up to. But I just have this sense in my spirit that there's, there's something afoot in the unseen. And that's an invitation from God. And I, and I want every person that's a part of the new song to experience that. Because there is no greater joy than the pleasure that you can have in the presence of God as you're walking a step with Him, as you're experiencing Him, and especially when we experience it together. So the books are back there. Would you bow your heads? What is God poking at? As we talked today, or maybe even before you got here, what is God poking at? When God pokes at something, it's because he loves you. Because he wants something better for you. It's better for you to surrender and listen and obey. So I encourage you to do that. What might keep you from participating in this study? Pride? That's about all I can think of. Really, it's that. Lord, I pray that you would guide us moment by moment, step by step on this journey, this new life, that you would develop the skills that would cause us to be your soldiers, your disciples, your family. I pray that you would lead us through the details of this study that we don't even know are ahead. I pray for those that um, we'll need a different kind of group um, that you will arrange that in, in a way that is it just gives us uh, just makes us amazed um, so that we can be all that you want us to be Lord thank you for leading us to this and now as we go forward make us the soldiers you used to be in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
if 